Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carving Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects, climate change. As the largest carbon sink on the planet, we continue to see growing interest in enhancing the ocean's ability to remove and store CO2. In the last month alone, we've seen the largest investment to date in an ocean-based carbon removal startup, California-based Ebb Carbon. Soon after, Dalhousie University announced it received $150 million, its largest grant ever, from the Canadian government to investigate the ocean's role in climate change, including advancing the science and technology around ocean-based carbon removal. In the face of economic uncertainty, it looks like ocean-based carbon removal isn't going anywhere. But a number of critical questions remain about its future. For example, how do we govern carbon removal activities in the ocean, which is considered a global commons? How do we overcome measurement, reporting, and verification limitations of ocean-based carbon removal methods? And how do we mitigate negative impacts on ecosystems and communities? In this episode, I'll be speaking to the lead author of a new report published by Carbon 180 on what a responsible future for ocean carbon removal looks like and the role policy can play in helping us get there. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at carboncurve.substack.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me a note at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Sifeng Chen. Dr. Chen is a Managing Science and Innovation Advisor at Carbon 180 and currently leads the organization's ocean carbon removal focus. Carbon 180 is a new breed of climate NGO on a mission to reverse two centuries of carbon emissions. Working closely with U.S. policymakers, entrepreneurs, and peer organizations, Carbon 180 designs the policies that will bring necessary carbon removal solutions to gigaton scale. They're the only team in the U.S. exclusively dedicated to bringing together the people, resources, and vision to build a carbon-removing world. Dr. Chen works to ensure Carbon 180's policy work is informed by the most up-to-date science and industry knowledge. She has previously worked in science policy, biotechnology, and nanotechnology. Sifeng holds a BS in physics from the University of British Columbia, my alma mater, and a PhD in physics from the University of Washington. Dr. Chen authored the recently published Carbon 180 white paper entitled Depending on the Ocean, Research and Policy Priorities for Responsible Ocean Carbon Removal. This paper explores how policy can help lower existing uncertainties around ocean carbon removal and offer specific recommendations aimed at clarifying the efficacy, ecosystem impacts, and necessary regulations and governance for this emerging field of carbon removal. Dr. Chen, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, and you have such an interesting background, aside from our shared undergrad location, as well as a number of different experiences. What led you to CDR and in particular to ocean CDR? You know, I actually come from a very interdisciplinary background and I'm really a technologist at heart. I love thinking about new technologies and I also think about how we use technologies to make our lives better. And I actually started my research career working on next generation transistors. And I spent a lot of time in clay looms making really small circuits on tiny pieces of graphene. And then I spent the bulk of my grad school years working on what's called molecular computing, which is essentially making computers and logic gates out of chemical or biological molecules. 
And it was really during this grad school time that I started paying more attention to climate action and to the climate crisis. And it's obviously one of the biggest challenges of facing our generation today. So I started to spend a lot of time thinking about how my tech and science expertise could help alleviate some of the environmental challenges that we have today. And so very luckily, my experience working on molecular computing got me an internship to work with a team at Microsoft Research on developing low-cost and portable water pollution sensors. And that was, no pun intended, really a watershed moment for me because up until that point, I didn't really spend a lot of time on the, if you will, the human side of technology, thinking about the social policy aspects and dimensions of technologies. And for this project, we actually went to talk to the communities that we thought we could partner with to really understand their needs and their priorities and have those needs inform how we can design this particular sensor. And so, for example, one of the feedback we got was privacy concerns about these water sensors detecting pharmaceutical or drug use. And so feasibility of that concern aside, right, it was really a very eye-opening experience for me because you know, I was here laser focused on putting together circuits in the lab and trying to run experiments and get the sensor working. And I never had to think about the kind of social components of this technology, but the human part of the equation, it's just so central to developing good tech. And I felt that that was so key, especially for climate technologies, because climate change at the end of the day, it's really just this huge social problem, right? And that's what got me interested in doing work in science and technology policy. Uh, so after grad school, I did a postdoc fellowship at a place called the Engineering Biology Research Consortium to work on science policy related to biotechnology, where I focused on looking at research opportunities in biotech to address climate and environmental issues. And after that, I wanted to continue working in a more climate-focused space. So I applied to Carbon 180, and I was super thrilled when I got this job because working at the intersection of technology, climate, and policy is literally my dream job. And so to your question as why ocean carbon removal, as you heard, I'm not an oceanographer or a marine biologist or chemist by training, but I do love how interdisciplinary the ocean CDR field is. You really have sort of all the major scientific disciplines that are involved in this. And ocean CDR inherently has a global scale and scope. And the ocean belongs to all of us, right? And my personal experience, I've lived in three different countries. I grew up in China and Canada and went to a school here in the U.S. So fundamentally, that international collaboration and governance aspect of ocean CDR really drew me to it as well. It is truly interdisciplinary, and that's what makes it such a fascinating field. And that's great to hear about this kind of journey that took you all the way from computers that are running on biologically based chips to ocean CDR, but so many of us come to this space from entirely different fields. And so I love hearing stories like that. So you begin the white paper with some interesting information about the ocean. The ocean is the largest carbon sink on the planet, containing almost 50 times more carbon dioxide than is currently in the atmosphere. It represents 95% of the Earth's biosphere, 
and it's home to 78% of animals on the planet. But as large as it is, and as dependent as we are on it, we know relatively little about the ocean. Before we even get into ocean CDR and the uncertainties around it, what are some of our gaps in our knowledge about oceans more generally? That's a great question. The ocean is a very complicated and intricate ecosystem. And there are a lot of things that we currently still don't know about the ocean. So for instance, in our white paper, we cite a few numbers to illustrate this exact point. For example, we say more than 80% of the ocean remains unmapped and unexplored, and 91% of the marine species currently remain unclassified. And scientists are discovering new species in the depths of the ocean all the time. And some of these discoveries can have really important implications, like new antibiotics that can kill superbugs, for instance. Scientists are still trying to understand, for instance, the interactions between the ring species, the effects of climate change on ocean biogeochemistry, and also how human activities are impacting ocean biodiversity and ocean chemistry today. And with ocean carbon removal, this is going to complicate this already very complicated picture by introducing certain unknowns and additional disturbances to the marine ecosystem. And there's going to be a lot more research that's needed to understand the full scale and scope of these interactions. I mean, as you were speaking, what struck me was just how much we still need to learn about the ocean and this theme of uncertainty around the ocean insofar as how we understand it, it seems to be a really relevant theme to thinking about the ocean in relation to carbon removal. So given the ocean's dominance in our biosphere and its scale as a carbon sink, it's kind of natural to wonder what its potential could be in carbon removal, and also to imagine that there are many different ways in which it could be used. So given this, ocean CDR serves as an umbrella term for an array of possible carbon removal interventions. How do you define ocean carbon removal? And are there helpful ways to categorize the different intervention types? I like to think of ocean CDR in sort of these two broad categories, biological and chemical. Both types of approaches, want to note, they happen at the top layer of the ocean. So basically like the first 100 to 200 meters where the ocean meets the atmosphere and you can have gases being exchanged between the atmosphere and the ocean. And that's essentially how you're able to draw out CO2 from the atmosphere. So with biological approaches, they leverage photosynthesis to draw out CO2 from seawater, much like how trees do on land. Marine organisms like seaweed, they can photosynthesize and take up CO2 in seawater. And so over time, this marine biomass is going to sink into the deep ocean where carbon can be stored away for a really long time. And so now that top layer of the ocean where the seaweed used to reside, now it has less CO2. And because the water is in contact with the atmosphere, it can come now into a new equilibrium. And you have less CO2 in the seawater, so there's more room in the ocean, if you will, for CO2 in the atmosphere to be absorbed by the ocean. And that's how you get atmospheric carbon removal from ocean carbon removal. And so on the chemical side, these approaches follow, follow a really similar principle, uh, except here you're relying on 
chemical reactions to literally remove CO2 from seawater or turn CO2 into a more stable form of inorganic carbon, like bicarbonate or carbonate ions. And this effectively can take CO2 out of seawater. And so the end result, right, is the same as what you have with these biological approaches where you get less CO2 in the seawater at the top layer, and that enables drawdown of CO2 from the atmosphere. Sometimes people also talk about ocean CDR in terms of biotic and abiotic approaches. So as in biological or non-biological, I prefer the biological and chemical framing. It's the framing that we also use in this white paper because we often think of land-based or terrestrial CDR in terms of biological and chemical approaches as well. So I think there's this nice parallelism that already exists. And because our paper is targeted towards policymakers, I was also hoping that having that kind of parallelism would make it more accessible for our audience as well. Yeah, that's really great. And I think getting to greater precision within carbon removal and across different carbon removal methods is important as the field matures and people can understand a little bit better about how all these different pathways work. And I was wondering if you could help us just expand a little bit on that flux between the upper ocean and the atmosphere. How well is that dynamic understood? Yeah, so the upper layer of the ocean is what sometimes people call epipelagic zone. And that's where a lot of photosynthesis really happens. You get sunlight that comes into the ocean. That means the plant biomass are able to photosynthesize and take up that CO2. It's also the area where the ocean can exchange gas and therefore CO2 with the atmosphere. So generally, this area of the ocean exists in equilibrium with the atmosphere. And then being able to draw out CO2 from this part of the ocean basically creates more space for the ocean to take in CO2 from the atmosphere, therefore being able to enable drawdown. And the upper layer of the ocean and sort of deeper parts of the ocean also exchange carbon. You have carbon transports that go from the upper layer of the ocean into the deeper parts of the ocean through things like marine snowfall, through things like thinking of macroalgae and microalgae as these biomass die over time, they will carry that carbon that they have absorbed over time via photosynthesis into the deeper parts of the ocean. And of course, that carbon then gets transported into deeper layers of the ocean where sometimes they can store or be stored for a really long time, either in the bottom part of that water column or even more durably in the top layer or even deeper layer of the ocean's floor and other types of sediments. And you're also going to have you know, flows of CO2 between different parts of the ocean as well. And so it's a whole large open complex system. And I know we're going to talk about MRV probably a little bit later. And so I think that's also a really challenging part for ocean CDR as well, because you are dealing with these really large open and complex system where the carbon is really just moving around in this three-dimensional space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've touched on some of these already, but would you be able to describe some of the ocean CDR methods that fall under the two categories you outlined for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. So on the biological side, there are several methods. So there is macroalgae cultivation and sinking, which involves farming macroalgae, otherwise known as seaweed, and deliberately sinking them. And then there is ultra fertilization, where you're adding nutrients like iron and phosphorus to the surface ocean to stimulate algal growth. And so over time, that algal biomass sinks, and that's how you achieve carbon sequestration. And then there's artificial welling, where you're artificially moving water from deeper parts of the ocean, where there's a lot of nutrients. And by moving that nutrient-rich water to the surface, you can stimulate algal growth. So you can almost think of it as sort of a subtype of ocean fertilization, if you will. And on the chemical side, there's ocean alkalinity enhancement, or OAE, where you're adding alkaline minerals into the ocean that react with the CO2 in seawater to form more stable forms of carbon, like bicarbonates and carbonates. And people sometimes describe this as giving the ocean an antacid, which I think is a really apt analogy because alkalinity can neutralize acidity. So OAE, you know, in addition to removing CO2 from the water, it could also have this added potential co-benefit of reducing ocean acidification. And OAE can also be achieved electrochemically, where you are taking in seawater into a facility through a pipe, for example, and you process that seawater using electrochemistry, and then you produce an output stream of seawater that has enhanced alkalinity. And finally, there's also direct ocean capture, which basically is like chemical or electrochemical OAE, but instead of putting additional alkalinity, you're processing that seawater to remove or extract CO2, where that CO2 can be, for instance, injected underground, much like you would do with stacks. You can sort of think of it as a ocean-based parallel to direct air capture. So that's a lot of different methods, right? And so that's why I find it really helpful to think of them in terms of buckets like biological or chemical approaches. And I'd say both types of interventions are right now largely inspired or based on processes that already occur in nature. And what Ocean CDR wants to do is to be able to do this more intentionally, do it faster, and do it at a larger scale. And of course, we're really in the early days of ocean CDR. So while these are methods that most people are uh, familiar with and that are most popular or being widely discussed and researched today, there definitely could be more innovative and different approaches in the future. Right. And you've kind of gone through quite an array of different methods, which inherently will vary across innovation stages and technological readiness levels and potential risks and co-benefits, you know, as part of the white paper, you highlight some of the major challenges facing ocean CDR. Could you describe some of these, especially the higher priority ones? In the white paper, we identified these four challenges facing ocean CDR today. And we see these four challenges as bottlenecks that must be solved in tandem for the fields to scale responsibly. So the first challenge is around governance of ocean CDR, because ocean CDR is so new, it is really not part of any existing regulatory or governance frameworks yet. And the frameworks that do exist for ocean activities 
are either inadequate or they're insufficient to address ocean CDR because they were never really designed with ocean CDR in mind. So a prime example of this sort of lack of clarity is permitting, which is on the minds of a lot of people working in ocean CDR today. There's currently not really a clear process for obtaining permits for doing ocean CDR field trials. These field trials are really important for getting data about whether and how well ocean CDR technologies work. And for instance, questions like durability of carbon sequestration, what are the impacts on the ecosystem, et cetera. And without clear permitting guidance and guidelines, it's really limiting for the amount of data that we can collect. And this creates also more uncertainties for companies, for investors, and additionally can raise concerns for the public. So the next challenge that we identified is a small or limited knowledge base. Uh, and these technologies, like I said, are so new that we basically don't really have the field data on the efficacy, safety, and impacts of these approaches. And sure, we could speculate, for instance, based on modeling and for understanding of ocean biogeochemistry, what are some of the possible outcomes of various ocean CDR methods. And there are, for instance, natural analogs to some of these ocean CDR approaches. But ocean CDR is taking this process to a whole new level. Instead of CO2, for instance, being cycled out on a geological time scale, folks want to do it on an order of years or even months. And that's a huge difference, right? And could have really big and long lasting impacts on the ecosystem. And so we want to know what are the magnitude, the spatial and temporal scales of those effects on ocean carbon and marine ecosystems. We just right now can't say very definitively what these impacts are going to look like. And we know more about some of the methods than others. But I would say on average that our knowledge base is still really limited. And a third challenge that we have identified is this question around public benefits. So right now that's really uncertain, but also at the same time, a lot of people live next to the ocean and a lot of people depend on the ocean for their livelihood. They could all be impacted in some way, either positively or negatively by ocean CDR projects. And currently today, ocean CDR's awareness in the public is really low. And of course, attitudes towards geoengineering is controversial right now at best. So I think it's going to be incumbent upon the field to also identify and assess what those benefits and risks are to the public and also identify who benefits from these activities, who pays, who bears the burden of risk. These questions are going to be really central to CDR in general. And I think ocean CDR faces sort of an even higher standard given the common idea that the ocean could be and should be protected and conserved. Uh, so ultimately, we want to do things in the right way and redress and not perpetuate past harms and wrongs. And so we really want to be able to center those public benefits and identify what they may be. And the last but not least challenge is MRV or monitoring, reporting, and verification. So MRV, obviously super important because we need it to answer questions of efficacy, permanence, ecosystem impacts, 
It's going to be key to establishing trust in the industry to be able to know whether companies have actually removed the amount of carbon that they have promised and also to provide transparency into the process. So MRV for Ocean CDR, though, can be really tricky. Like I said, you're really dealing with this large, open, complex system and the effects of an ocean CDR project that take place, for instance, in one part of the ocean could travel to a totally different part of the ocean. And then along the way, you could have secondary effects from interactions between your ocean CDR intervention with marine organisms or marine chemistry. And currently, we just really lack the proper tools, the technologies, the modeling tools, the protocols and standards to evaluate those effects and provide robust carbon accounting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all of these challenges. And you could apply each of these in many ways to many different carbon removal methods. It strikes me that the lack of permitting to even conduct field research is probably leading to a couple of the major knowledge gaps that we have right now around the lack of field data that you mentioned earlier and the tools and technologies and our lack of visibility on the measurement reporting and verification side of things. And it almost feels like if we don't figure out how to permit even just research level activities, we won't figure out those other two subsequent pieces. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think permitting is sort of a central piece, or I would say a linchpin to everything else that could be good that could happen to Ocean CDR. And it's really central to being able to enable those responsible innovations to take place because we're going to need permitting in order to have that field data that we really need to come in. And then without permitting, our understanding of Ocean CDR, how it interacts with the ecosystem is going to remain really lacking. And that is not a good way to build trust, is not a good way to be able to identify what are the most effective and least harmful approaches for Ocean CDR. So yeah, totally agree that permitting is a really, really key piece to this. And we think the federal government can play a really big part in alleviating some of the lack of clarity that currently we have in the permitting space for Ocean CDR. And it can have a really instrumental role to play in this. Let's dig into MRV a bit more. Um, it seems like we have a long way to go in order to develop adequate measurement reporting and verification for many of the ocean CDR pathways you mentioned. What are some of the MRV-specific obstacles? And would you agree that it's important for an early-stage ocean CDR company to focus on MRV as part of their work? Yeah, that's a great question. So like I was saying, the biggest challenge for ocean CDR MRV is that you're dealing with these vast, open, and complex systems. Uh, that's the ocean. And compared to terrestrial CDR, where the impacts and effects are more localized, those impacts and effects in ocean CDR is going to be really dispersed. So we want to be able to measure what those effects on ocean carbon and ecosystems are, but it's obviously not going to be practical to put sensors everywhere in the ocean, right? So first, ocean sensors right now, today, are really, really expensive to make still. So the cost of sensors need to calm down. And if there's going to be MRV for ocean CDR at the scale that people are envisioning, we need that 
cost curve to come down. And second, we don't really have a great idea right now of how far apart these sensors should be placed and how often measurements should take place for optimal monitoring. But these are the kind of things that programs like CCO2 program at ARPA-E are trying to solve. And I'm really looking forward to seeing promising technologies that come out of that. And a second part of the equation that's going to be really essential is modeling. So we're going to need basically a combination of modeling and in-situ monitoring and instrumentation to get the kind of data that we're going to need for robust MRV. And creating new ocean models is a really resource-intensive process. It's time-consuming, and you often need access to supercomputing time. And a lot of that work currently, it's being done in academia, but there isn't really a great way for that knowledge to be transferred readily to industry. If you ever work with a model developed in a research lab, you will know how hard it is to try to integrate it into some sort of commercial pipeline. Uh, so we're going to need better ways to enable more efficient knowledge transfer between academia and industry as well, and also to build up that talent pool for MRV, because for sure we're going to need a lot of people to be doing this work. And so that's just the technical side to MRV. And then there's also the non-technical side. So right now there's sort of confusion and opaqueness around how carbon accounting is done today. And, you know, that impedes public understanding and can hinder trust building. And of course, CDR is a really new field. And so people are still trying to figure out how to do MRP right. But we want to solve this in a timely way because so long as there's confusion and you know, multiple bodies and standards for vetting and overseeing different MRV standards, there's going to be room for things like conflict of interest and in the worst case, fraud, right? So even, I think, even good people can become misguided under bad incentives. So it's going to be really crucial that the right structures and incentives are put in place to put Ocean CDR on the right track. Uh, and I think that partially gets to your question on whether ocean CDR companies should focus on MRV in their work. So on one hand, you have this potential conflict of interest where the company would be basically playing both athlete and referee, and this could really slow down trust building. And on the other hand, I think it also puts a resource strain on companies in terms of time, personnel, and finances. Like for instance, when I was saying, about modeling, you're going to need a lot of that supercomputing time that you really companies just don't have the resources to have access to. And right now, there just isn't really a great alternative because ocean CDR methods can be so specific in how they draw down CO2. And MRV basically has to be tailor-made for each of those processes. But I think for the field to scale and to scale responsibly, we're going to need more universal methods to conduct MRV. And that's why I think it's so key for the public sector, like the federal government, to support development of MRV uh, technologies, protocols, and standards. We can't lose sight of the system-wide changes that need to happen in order for MRV to work well. and. It just occurs to me that having companies trying to do this in a fragmented way 
might work right now, but eventually it really will need to ladder up into something that benefits the broader ecosystem, or it's just going to be a lot of wasted resources. And I think the point that you make as well, these strange kind of incentive structures that can also be problematic. To shift gears a little bit here, you're also very intentional about distinguishing between ocean CDR and blue carbon. Uh, can you briefly define blue carbon and then why you separate the two? Blue carbon involves basically planting vegetations like mangroves, kelp, and seagrasses along coastal regions and coastal areas to remove carbon and also to restore coastal ecosystems. So our white paper separates the two, so ocean CDR and blue carbon, because I think there are some really fundamental differences in the challenges and opportunities the two face. So blue carbon has actually been around a lot longer than ocean CDR. There's more social acceptance and social awareness around it. Uh, there are also more proven co-benefits like blue carbon being able to slow down coastal erosion from sea level rise and being able to improve local biodiversity. And at the same time, studies have shown that the potential for CO2 drawdown from blue carbon can be actually pretty limited. Uh, however, because of all these ecosystem benefits, the National Academy's report on ocean carbon removal actually describes blue carbon as a low regret option because we understand these co-benefits a lot better and also that the risks to environment and ecosystems are low. Uh, and this is not currently the case for technological ocean CDR or what we just call ocean CDR in this white paper. Ocean CDR right now just has a totally different public awareness and acceptance profile. And we also understand a lot less about the benefits and risks of these approaches. So that's why we made the distinction in this white paper. Another very interesting part of your work is your description of possible futures for ocean CDR. And I think this is such an important and useful exercise, not just to do for ocean CDR, but carbon removal more broadly. You've identified a responsible future and an irresponsible future. Can you talk a bit more about each of those? Yeah, I am so glad you brought this up. So I think policy can generally be really abstract and it's hard to imagine what the outcomes of these policies, if they were implemented, could look like. And I'm a very visual person. So when I was writing this paper, I was really trying to visualize what the world might look like with ocean CDR in it. And the future of ocean CDR could look really different depending on what we do today. So the two examples that we provided are meant to illustrate what a quote-unquote good versus a quote bad future might look like, given the actions or lack of actions that we take today. Uh, and so I also wanted to use these two scenarios as sort of a tool to show that the four challenges that we outlined, governance, MRB, knowledge base, and public benefits are interconnected and that we need to address them in tandem to put the field on the right track. So in the responsible scenario, we have governance and regulatory clarity first and permitting guidance that will allow ocean CDR field testing to take place. And there's also government oversight of these projects, making sure that there's no harm done to communities and the environment. And this field test data 
is going to be able to improve our understanding of the efficacy, benefits, and risks of ocean CDR methods. And at the same time, we are developing robust and transparent MRV technology and standards so we could really say with confidence how much carbon is being removed by these methods. Uh, there are great frameworks in place to build capacity for communities to understand ocean CDR. So if developers come to these communities, they can have the tools to understand what's being asked of them. And additionally, there are frameworks in place for developers to really prioritize public benefits and the needs and wants of local communities that could be affected by these projects. Uh, so there's more trust in the sector from the public because of this transparency and this kind of two-way engagement and all of this good stuff, you know, hopefully enables Ocean CDR to move towards responsible scale-up. Now, conversely, we also present the irresponsible scenario where you don't have any regulatory oversight or permits to conduct field trials or otherwise, but companies are still going to go forward with their planned pilot testing anyway, and some of them are going to be well-intended and they're going to be good actors, but others might just be rogue actors. And you basically just don't have any guardrails uh, on what can or cannot be done. And in the worst case scenario, this could destroy trust in this emerging sector and could potentially lead to irreversible and far-reaching damages to communities and to the ecosystem. So... Obviously, these examples are not definitive. You know, there could be a lot of alternative versions of the future that could happen. And this is a policy paper. It's targeted at policymakers. So also, we really wanted to you know, make that potential impact of how these policy recommendations could affect people, make it more concrete to our readers. And I hope the importance of laying the groundwork today really came through and will stick with people. Yeah, let's get into policy. What role do you think policy can or should play in achieving the responsible future scenario or avoiding that irresponsible future? I see the U.S. government being able to play a very dynamic and central role in supporting and guiding this new industry, very much like how we did with direct air capture and also for other emerging industries like biotechnology. So for new technologies like this, I think... First, the public is going to feel more assured if they can see that there are clear guidance and guardrails put in place by the public sector, especially from the federal government. It's also going to make it easier for innovators to test their technologies under some sort of oversight and streamlined permitting process. The federal government has traditionally also played a really large role in supporting basic and applied research. And I very much think the same should happen here with Ocean CDR in providing funding support for validating Ocean CDR methods and developing MRV technologies. So, for instance, we've recommended in this white paper that the government establish a dedicated office at NOAA or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to focus on Ocean CDR. So. NOAA has a huge amount of expertise when it comes to oceanography. They have assets like ocean monitoring networks. And so these capabilities 
should be leveraged. They should be expanded. They should be built upon in addition to additional research on ocean CDR and enabling technologies. The federal government also, you know, inherently has a responsibility to put the public first. So it's a natural actor to create frameworks for ocean CDR to center public benefits. Uh, for example, we can create campaigns to educate the public about the benefits and the risks of ocean CDR. Coming back to that capacity building piece for communities, it can create opportunities for public feedback on ocean CDR technologies, and it can fund research into studying, for instance, the social economic impacts of ocean CDR and other social science topics. There is currently a huge gap in this area right now, even more so, I would say, than the gaps on the technical side. So there's a lot of different ways for the federal government to get involved and play a key role in ocean CDR. And we provide specific policy recommendations in our white paper to this end. That's really great. And I think public perception, engagement, and acceptance are going to be really critical moving forward. It's my impression that this might be tricky for certain ocean CDR methods. Can you share some of your thinking around how to center environmental justice in the ocean CDR space? I think your impression is really spot on. So public awareness and acceptance of ocean CDR is really low right now. And that's one of the challenges that we identified right in our white paper. And I think in order to build trust, it's important that we don't just make public acceptance the goal. Rather, I think we should make a capacity building in communities the goal. And so here I want to give an example of the amazing EJ Regranti work in this area done at Carbon 180. It's led by our really incredible EJ team and my colleague Elena Tooney. So essentially through this EJ Regranti program, we reached out to local environmental groups that are really embedded in frontline communities. And then we provided resources to help them build capacity to understand direct air capture. And the goal there wasn't to convince them that DAC is good and that they should support this, but it was really to help them build tools and craft the tools to understand how this technology works, what are the implications of this technology, and all of the benefits and risks associated with DAC as it applies for their community specifically. And I think that should be the goal for Ocean CDR as well. Trust building really has to start by meeting people where they are. And I think capacity building has got to be a really, really key piece in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be really limiting to Ocean CDR's potential if we don't figure out these pieces around public perception and overall acceptance. And so I totally agree that it's going to be critical as we move forward and centering concerns that relate to environmental justice for ocean CDR is going to be really, really critical. Sifeng, congratulations on getting out this white paper, and I hope that we have an opportunity to enact a lot of the policies that you recommend under our Responsible Future scenario. How do people learn more about this work, and how do they get in touch with you? I would really invite you to check out our white paper at carbon180.org. It was just recently launched and check out that paper if you like what you heard today. There we provide a lot of 
policy recommendations that really talk about how the federal government can address many of the challenges facing Ocean CDR today and unlock some of the opportunities that Ocean CDR could provide in terms of our fight against climate change. And you can also find me on Twitter and on LinkedIn, where I will be posting things related to Ocean CDR. Amazing. This space is extremely lucky to have you leading the charge on what we can imagine the role for Ocean CDR to play. So thank you so much for your work and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. 